Well, our passage for reflection this morning is out of 2 Corinthians chapter 13. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, we'll be reading verse 11. It's the end of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. I've titled my sermon this morning, Preserving Perichoresis. I use this title because one of you sent me a comic strip sort of warning pastors from using that fancy-sounding Greek word perichoresis in the message for Trinity Sunday, which is today, the day in which we reflect on the Trinitarian nature of God. So I want to thank Patty Litton for my sermon title this morning. We likely won't deep dive into the meaning of perichoresis. It's a, it's a sort of Greek word that's used to describe the mutual indwelling of the persons of the Trinity. But we won't deep dive into the Greek language necessarily, but we will talk about uh, just our longing to be together, potty training and dirty diapers in the Calusa household, some family storytelling, and living with God. But before we jump into all of that, let's turn to the Word of God. Second Corinthians 13, we'll be reading verses 11 through 13. Paul concludes his letter this way. Finally, brothers and sisters, farewell. Put things in order. Listen to my appeal. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. As I was scrolling through Twitter yesterday, I saw a friend of mine write these words. I noticed that pastors are having conversations about the logistics of regathering for worship, and people in their churches are talking about wanting to connect with their churches. Perhaps pastors ought to be having that latter conversation. I don't know about you, but I find myself yearning to be together in these weeks as a church. It's been evident to me in my conversations with many of you over the past week that you two share this longing to be together as a church community, not virtually, not online, but physically together. These shelter-in-place orders have been exhausting for many of us. Many of us are dealing with financial strains in these days. Some of us are dealing with sort of health challenges and surgeries and sickness of loved ones in these weeks. They're building relational tensions in some of our homes. We just can't get out and away from one another. And we find ourselves just wanting to share these burdens with our church family. Uh, we do find ourselves in days of societal unrest, considering really deep and complex issues like racial injustices that really are best conversed about in person with conversation, face-to-face -face conversations because the conversations are so nuanced. And there's something about just like being together that I think helps us as a church body carry one another's burdens and loads. It's one of those gatherings when we can physically be together, where we can pray together and confess together, where we can share our lives with one another, laugh with one another, cry with one another, whatever it is. There's this deep longing to be in relationship, to be in community with one another. In the creation stories of Genesis, 
you'll see that after God creates something, he declares it to be good. Every day of creation concludes with this declaration for God. God saw that all that he had made and said that it was good. Things are declared good after the first day of creation. Things are declared good after the second day of creation. Things are declared good after the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth days of creation. There's only one thing within the creation accounts that is declared not good. In Genesis 2, 18, God pronounces, it is not good that the man should be alone. It is not good to be alone. In the series of proclamations of things that God has created to be good, they come to this screeching halt with this proclamation from God that it is not good. It's the only thing before the fall that is said to be not good. And in some ways, many of us are experiencing the truth of this proclamation by God in Genesis 2 as we experience division or loneliness and separation from one another. To understand why it is the case that loneliness is not good, we need to understand that we are made in the image of God and God does not exist alone. God is not alone. God has never been alone. It is told to us in 1 John 4, 8 that God is love. God is love. What's amazing about this familiar passage is what the passage doesn't say. The passage doesn't say God loves. Rather, it says God is love. That is, love isn't an activity of God. It is rather the essence of God's being. Love isn't a verb that God does. It is a noun that God is. And because God's essence is love, and love is impossible without relationship, we learn from these three words, this declaration of God's essence, that God exists in relationship. God is, as the Bible unpacks throughout the New Testament, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is one God and three persons held together in a relationship of love. That is, God exists in relationship with God's self by love. We refer to this reality of God's essence as the Trinitarian nature of God. One God, three persons. This is, by the way, one of the distinguishing features of Christianity amongst the great monotheistic faiths in the world. Other monotheistic faiths posit a God who existed in solitude before the creation of the world. The Christian faith uniquely makes the claim that God's essence is in relationship with God's self. You often hear people try to explain this Trinitarian nature of God with various illustrations, one of the most common is the use of an egg. People will often say you have an egg yolk, an egg white, and an egg shell, three things that make up a singular thing, an egg. The problem with this and other such illustrations is that they fail to really capture the mystery of the Trinity. The egg yolk can exist independent of the egg white and the egg shell. The egg white can exist independent of the egg yolk and the eggshell. Praise God, we can have healthy eggs in the morning. The eggshell can exist independent of the egg yolk and the egg white. But when we talk about the Trinity, when we talk about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we must understand that the Father cannot exist apart from the Son and the Spirit. The Son cannot exist apart from the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit cannot exist apart from the Father and the Son. This is why the great North African theologian, Augustine, 
said to speak of the Trinity is attempting to speak of things that cannot be uttered. The Trinity is a mystery. It's a mystery of God's loving relational essence. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around what it is that we're even saying theologically. But the point is simply this. We are made in the image of God and God exists in relationship, in community with God's self because God is love. And to be made in God's image, at least in part, is to have an essential need for loving relationship, for loving community, and it is not good to be alone. To be alone, to be divided, to be separated, the scriptures say, is not good. Division and separation are cornerstone consequences of sin. They are indicators that something wrong is at play in our midst. We see this at the very beginning when Adam and Eve are in the garden and they eat the forbidden fruit. They are quickly separated from God and they're hiding from him and quickly separated from one another through accusations and finger pointing. It's her fault that we are in this mess that we are in. When Cain becomes jealous of his brother Abel, he is separated from his brother through the killing of his brother. The pride of those building the Tower of Babel leads to the separating and dividing of the nations. But this type of separation as consequence of sin isn't just true of ancient peoples and biblical stories. We have seen division and separation emerge within our own nation in recent months and weeks. Evidence that there's a sickness that pervades our society. When pandemics break out, when unjust killings happen, when violence escalates in contemporary America, we often find lines in the sand being drawn and a call to be on one side or the other. We live in divisive times. And this is not just true of the broader society in which we are set. It too is true of the church. The church experiences division. And this isn't just true of the contemporary church. It was true of the first century church as well. The church in Corinth, the ones to whom Paul is writing in the passage of scripture that we read this morning, is experiencing division of various kinds. They were experiencing divisions based on the preferred pastors of each. I like this pastor. I like Apollos, they say in 1 Corinthians 1. Well, we like this pastor. We like Paul. He's the one who baptized my whole family. He's a better pastor. They were experiencing division interpersonally, bringing one another to court and suing one another in the courts. They experienced divisions in their marriages through divorce and strange relationships that were emerging in these blended families in the church. They experienced divisions over what they could or couldn't eat. They experienced divisions over the, their worship practices. They experienced divisions over what gifts, spiritual gifts, were more important than others and hence who is more important than others within the church community. But we, the church in the 21st century, we experience divisions too. Some of them the same, but some of them are different. Am I thinking of divides due to politics, racism, faith communities of different theological perspectives? Am I thinking of generational divides and divides along socioeconomic class? Am I thinking of family life and marriage and divorce and partnerships? Yes. <laughs> yes, I'm thinking of all of these things. 
Look no further than the amount of posts of people requesting those on social media who disagree with them to unfriend or unfollow them this past week or two. Just to be clear, I don't have any single individual in mind who's doing this or any single person in our church who's doing this. I don't know what you're posting or not posting. I just know that as I sort of been scrolling through my social media feeds that this is a symptomatic trend of the divisive culture that we currently take up residence within. We live in divisive times. And the church is not immune to this. And this church is not good. So what are we to do? How do we safeguard the unity and solidarity of the church to best reflect that community of love that God calls us to bear as the church? How do we safeguard the unity and solidarity of the church from the forces and sin that would divide it? Is it possible, is it even possible to be a church that exists as a demonstration of solidarity and unity in the midst of a deeply divided world? Paul's exhortation to the church in Corinth extends from the pages of scripture to us today three commands he gives to the church. Put things in order. Agree with one another and live in peace. One of the difficulties in translating these exhortations from Paul is that they're actually singular word commands. Put things in order is a singular Greek word, katartitste, which literally means restore things. It is Paul's command to the church, that they ought to restore things when there's division that is emerging from within the community. The imperative to agree with one another is a translation of the Greek word phronete, which literally means to be of one mind. When I was first reading this passage this week, and Paul writes, agree with one another, I laughed. Is it even possible in the world that we live in today? And ironically, the thing that Paul is actually calling us to is much more difficult than that. It is to be of one mind. I have in my mind that great phrase in Philippians 2 where Paul commands the church to have the mind of Christ in you. The call to be of one mind is for the church to have the mind of Christ in them. And the phrase, live in peace, is a translation of the singular Greek word, which is used in the New Testament as a way of describing relational peace, that is to have peace with others. To live in peace here for Paul is not merely to be, have a sort of calm disposition where you just feel like everything is fine, right? It is to have relational peace, restored peace with the community of faith. And these exhortations of Paul's to the church in Corinth draw our attention to the truth that unity and solidarity and restoration and peace are actively cultivated, not passively received. Like pushing a boulder uphill, simply maintaining one's position requires a tremendous amount of effort. And if we are ever to arrive at the peak of community, unity, and solidarity, our effort to maintain relational unity must be greater than the forces that cause division amongst us. And so what sort of efforts might we make to that end? What might we practically do or not do to cultivate and maintain unity and solidarity with one another in the church? Paul's own ministry offers us a model of cultivating and growing unity and solidarity within the body of Christ. Paul describes his ministry this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. It is, don't be hopeless. <laughs> Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. I want us to notice two things this morning about Paul's ministry that serve as a model, and they're significant for us in sustaining a community of solidarity and unity in a divisive world. One of these reflections is negative, that is something not to do, and one is positive, something that we ought to do. First, the negative. We do not use deception. We do not use deception. We are at the potty training stage of parenting with Levi, Confession time, we've been really horrible at this. We blame the pandemic. It's been really hard in recent weeks and months. But he has very little interest in growing in this area of his own life. Um, they tell us that boys usually potty train a little bit later, so we take some solace in that, but we're uh, disappointed in ourselves nonetheless. But he not only refuses to tell us when he has to go to the bathroom, he doesn't even want to inform us that he has already gone to the bathroom. Oftentimes in a day, I'll sit there in the living room and a familiar scent will come wafting into the air as he draws near to me and I will ask him, Levi, do you need to tell me something? He looks at me as innocently as he possibly can and just casually responds, no. <laughs> this is an obvious form of deception. We call it lying. It is not, however, the only form deception takes in community. Although, one of the obvious things perhaps I might say here is that we are not to lie to one another in the church. It damages community and relationships. But deception takes on many forms within the life of a community. Deception might be a hidden agenda or unstated motive that you have in meeting with a pastor, board member, ministry leader, or somebody else in your small group. Deception is seen in those moments where you only tell partial truths, maybe just half of the story. Maybe you're sitting in a prayer gathering and you just want to tell part of your side of the story and presenting a request to another person that makes you seem a little bit better in the situation perhaps than you were. Deception within community expresses itself when we speak about things without really knowing or understanding that which we speak about. That is, we have a great confidence that we exude as if we are some sort of authority or we've researched or we know or we've experienced things that we actually don't know much about. These and other forms of deception are especially treacherous when we are self-deceived as people. We may be self-deceived to our own agendas and motives. We may not even be aware of the fact that we have some hidden agenda or motive in conversations and relationships with people in the church we can be self-deceived in thinking we're telling enough of the truth, as if what we're doing is actually a good thing by withholding the whole story. We may be self-deceived to think we know and understand more than we actually do. Perhaps we're actually convinced that we are experts. We're actually convinced that we know and understand nuance and complex issues and topics and situations Deception is not a good thing. Self-deception is a particularly insidious thing. There's one form of deception that Paul specifies as particularly dangerous, though, in the community of faith that causes special division. 
distorting the word of God. That is twisting and manipulating the word of God to claim it says something that it doesn't. Often so that it bends around our own purpose, our own agenda, our own will. There's no shortage of pastors and national leaders who like to use the word of God for their own purposes, using the word of God to symbolically bless their personal agenda. They use it in sermons and speeches alike. It's used in photos, and it's used to swear on to take oaths, as if somehow, by swearing on a Bible, makes the thing that you said christened by the Christian faith. The current national conversation, in fact, brings to mind how the church, how pastors, how Christian nation justify enslaving people on the color, based on the color of their skin and using the Bible to justify it. Distorting the word of God is incredibly dangerous and damaging to the community of faith and to our witness. We cannot act in deceptive ways. We, ought, we have to, through prayer and conversation, be constantly self-aware of our motives and agendas, what we actually know, what we actually ought to say, and what we ought not to say, of how we actually understand the word of God. But we cannot act in deceptive ways with one another if we are to maintain unity and solidarity in the church and in our world. But second, the positive thing. <laughs> we share the whole truth in community. We share the whole truth in community. I like the way that Eugene Peterson captures this idea in the message translation of 2 Corinthians 4.2. Peterson translates it this way. We keep everything we do and say out in the open. The whole truth on display so that those who want to can see and judge for themselves in the presence of God. Everything we do and say out there on full display, the whole truth on display for everyone to see and judge for themselves in the presence of God. One of my worries in the church, one of my worries for our church actually, is that we find ourselves unwilling to share or display whole truths about ourselves or about what we think or about our faith openly in community, let alone pursue truth openly in community. There is a recognition that certain topics and ideas have the potential to cause discord and conflict in relationships. And in order to keep the peace, we might think, we ought to not talk about certain things within the context of the church. But it's often the case that such silence is nothing more than a mirage of peace and actually is the very thing that's causing division in the church. See, Paul's model of ministry doesn't allow for such silence. The whole truth, he says, ought to be on full display, shared and pursued within the community as a whole. To be clear, this is not an encouragement to post every thought you have on social media or on Twitter, whatever it is. It is rather to say that we ought to share candidly within the context of relationships, within the community of faith, ideas, truths that we're experiencing and trying to wrestle with in our own lives. And in so doing, our community can hear truth and perhaps guide us to more of it. My mother, God bless her, isn't the greatest storyteller in the world. Um, 
perhaps I've, I've been thinking that's where I get my inability from as well, but hopefully she's not watching this. But when she recalls a family story to a family friend in our presence, in the family's presence, we're constantly having to sort of fill in misdetails or correct parts that she misremembers. And it becomes actually this, this sort of familial telling of the story of histories of things that have happened in our family's life. And this is what it looks like to be a truth-telling and truth-seeking community, is that we do it publicly and we do it together, sharpening one another's thoughts and ideas. We have to be able and be willing to display it within the context of the community of faith rather than hiding from it. Do not use deception. Share truth openly with the community of faith. It is in such a life that we find ourselves realigned as one body, sharing, Paul says here, the peace of God. It takes continuous practice for each new truth we learn opens us to more and more and more truths. In John 17, Jesus prays this prayer for his disciples. I ask that they may all be one, unified, The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. That is what Jesus prays for the church, is that in the same way that God is is in communal love, communal relational love with himself, that we too as a church would exist in such a way with our churches. But then he concludes that prayer, he kind of goes on with that prayer and says this astounding thing. He says, I pray that they may be one as we are one, I in them, and you in me. That is, Jesus in us, and us in God. What we discover in this prayer is that the unity and solidarity of the triune God is not just something that we reflect as image bearers, but it is the life, the very life of God that we share in. That is, Jesus in us, and us in him. Is that in our unity of relational love, we actually begin to participate in the divine relationship of love that we discover in the Trinity. And it is only by the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that we are able to reflect and participate in this divine community of love. Wouldn't it be something if there was a church in the world (laughs) that reflected this divine community of love and participated in it fully. May it be so with us at Powerhouse 